Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the show, I speak with Danielle Laporte, or DLP as I affectionately call her. Danielle's work focuses on heart-centered living. She exhorts us to identify our core desired feelings and get clear about how we want to feel moment to moment. The provenance of feelings is the heart, and it uses its own little brain, yes, the heart has neurons, to communicate with our big brain. And when we are living a heart-centered life and not just a brain-centered conceptual life, then the communication is flowing both directions, and our thoughts and actions become a better reflection of how we want to feel. Now, this idea is at the core of her creations, the Desire Map book and planner, and the Heart-Centered Community Curriculum and Facilitator Program. Now, I speak with DLP about the relationship between feelings and the ego, the dangers of over-identifying with feelings, spiritual bypassing, rituals versus habits, the utility of writing in connection to feelings, how to hold polarization, and how to live with more love. So if you're interested in going deeper with Danielle, take part one of Danielle's commune course, The Desire Map, for free at onecommune.com slash desire dash map. Now, Danielle has been on the show before, and it's always been a heart-centered affair, and this conversation is no different. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Danielle Laporte. So there's a lot to talk about, as there always is. We always have fun. Um, Matters of the heart. Uh, feelings, where they originate, mm, the difference between feelings and states of being, uh, the dangers of over-identifying with feelings, spiritual bypassing, the utility of writing, how to hold polarization. I saw that in your 
note that you sent me. Um, all things that are prescient and of the moment. But why don't we start with a little foundation for folks? What is heart-centered living? I feel that it's reflective living. And then the next question would be, well, what are you reflecting on? Like who, what are you referring to? And I want to refer to my soul. I want to refer to higher guidance. I don't want to refer to like media or Instagram for how to live my life. I want to go to like, I want to get information from the source and I have, and there's some things I have to do in order to like dial that in. And those things all have to do with a more reflective life. And these are tools that have been around for thousands of years, but like there's a good reason to be still. There's a good reason to meditate. And my conclusion that I have to come to every week at least is that all of those things lead you back to the heart. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, and th this is also research based in terms, you know, my kind of research, which is endless amounts of mystics say the heart really is the portal to higher consciousness. And I don't think that that has gotten its due yet, hmm. obviously by the state of the world, but there's this place where I think, you know, all the meditation nerds and all of the touchy feely, I identify as hypersensitive, warm, fuzzy people can meet, <laughs> which is that the, the heart, you know, if you put your mind on your heart, you're going to get somewhere higher. Or you can put your mind on getting somewhere higher and it will bring you back to the heart. It's just like, it's it. That's it. For me, it's it. It's, it's, it's the, it's the only place I want to be. Hmm. And is that because you believe that feelings originate in the heart or that the heart, as you say, is some sort of portal into uh, virtue or states of being that are eternal, that we need to step into instead of perceiving them as just passing through us as phenomena. Mm -hmm. I think the heart is the portal to soul. The soul is the, um, the deliverer of God consciousness. Like my, my prayer these days is I, I turn to my soul for guidance, knowing that creation itself is going to inform my soul. But I just, I, you know, cognitively, I need to be able to wrap my thinking mind around something that's not too vast. You're just like, okay, soul, guide me. I also love that feeling of like self-responsibility of like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take this on. I'm mm. going to be responsible for, for burning my karma or doing good or healing my body. I'm going to do this knowing that I'm connected to the big thing. The other big question though, which is where do feelings come from? 
in my estimation and some other mystics, not that I consider myself a mystic, feelings do not come from the heart. They don't come from the soul. Feelings come from the unconscious realm. When you get really esoteric about this, they come from the astral realm. Feelings are great. It's they're part of being human. We should, we have, we have them. There's no argument. We have feelings. We should, the last thing we should do is suppress or condemn our feelings. They are like this kind of global positioning system, but it's not where we're headed. They're like developmental. There's something bigger, greater, sweeter, more eternal than whether I'm happy or sad right now. And I'm really interested in that. Right. Okay. Because this is something that I've been trying to unwind a tiny bit. So do you have a book coming out? Oh, you release a book. Great pride. Fills, fills you up. Great pride. I'm a winner. You know, oh, there's a bad review on Amazon. Great shame. Great disappointment. You know, I'm a loser. Great sales anyways. I'm a winner again tomorrow. The next day, I read another bad review. I'm a loser again. Oh, God. And, and this is the way with emotions. Um, at their simplest level, they just, you know, we are these incredibly impermanent beings experiencing phenomena in the most transitory way as it arises and, and, and subsides in the experience of awareness and you know when pleasure you notice and pain. that's it's yeah. just pleasure and pain and when you notice closely if you can muster the stamina to to focus your attention mm-hmm. that part of you that feels pride is the same part of you that feels the disappointment mm-hmm. and it is the over-identification with this part of ourselves that forms the ego self, our littler self. And nobody is beyond it, you know? Um, you know, uh, you know, maybe nobody. Eckhart Tolle or something. Or no, Dada, not Dada, even Dada. Eckhart, because I'll yeah. tell you, I was hanging with Eckhart and he let everybody know he does not read his book reviews because... <laughs> Which totally gave, you know, I gave myself permission, like let myself off the hook. He felt these were his words. Negative reviews formed this kind of stickiness in his consciousness that he doesn't want. So he stopped reading his reviews. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm not that messed up. (laughs) And never read your reviews. Yeah. I'm not Eckhart. By stickiness, do you mean ego? Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so we get this sense that the ego is the part of us that tells us we are what we do or our role in society or what we have or our placard behind our desk or on our door. Um, Mm -hmm. Essentially, the label that we give ourselves as part of a process of giving everything else in the world a label. And uh, it roots the experience of being alive in comparison and how we know that comparison is the thief of joy is it yeah the thief of joy joy and the great divider Mm. that's right this that continues to underscore this notion that we are separate beings living in this separate external universe 
completely, you know, cleaved from each other and nature, this whole story of separation becomes propagated even further. So what are the means by which we can deconstruct um, our identification with feelings and emotions, um, the, the, the ego, if you will? Well, how it worked for me was I realized uh, if I was happy that day, that hour, uh, I was still, you know, I would focus on what was making me happy, but I still felt like I'm connected to something bigger than myself. So like there's still some meaningfulness there. Mm -hmm. And then sad day, sad hour, <laughs> sad quarter, uh, still meaningful. And I just, my own revelation was I can still have this really purposeful life. It's like not predicated on whether I'm happy or not. Like the pursuit of happiness ain't it. The pursuit of meaning is it. Meaning is fulfilling. Meaningfulness gets me to this abiding joy. I know I have experienced joy in real sorrow and it's sweet and I want more of that. And it's really the only thing I want. I find really like kind of winnowed the desires, you know, I've been writing about desire for so long. It's like, mm -hmm. I only got one now. And um, I want the joy that comes from feeling like I'm on purpose. And I only feel like I'm on purpose when I feel that I'm, a, when I am being loving. Really, mm. I mean, I could say in so many other ways, like when I'm yeah. aligned to source, but it's like when I am being loving to myself and others, and then that's, you know, what happens, you don't see, you start to see less separation between self and others. Trying to see less separation between self and others. Well, actually, it's, a, for me, it's been this kind of necessary insanity. You know, everybody I run into now, like even, even in our interaction so far, I have a moment where I go, Jeff is me. I'm Jeff. Wow. This great haircut, you know? And like, I do it with the guy on the corner, you know, the end of my street. I'm just like, we're one. And it's super trippy some days and other days it's very comforting. There's this Chinese word or Chinese concept that appears in Confucianism and Taoism. It's called Ren. That's the worst pronunciation you'll ever hear of it. R-E-N, of course, it's a symbol, um, which is best described as co-humanity. It's the highest state that one can inhabit as a human. And... Uh, as a product of direct experience in Buddhism, for let's say, um, when you are in meditation and in deep meditation, uh, you begin to inhabit these states of being that are codified by this, the Brahma Bihara. But um, these two, well, there's four concepts, but two speak to, I think, specifically what you're talking about, which is this concept of mudita, in Sanskrit, joy for someone else's joy. Yes, empathetic or, joy, yes. Right, exactly. Um, 
could be understood as empathetic, the emotional donning of someone else's clothing, but always in an effusive way with a positive valence. And then karuna, which is like the identification of someone else's suffering as your own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are sensations um, that you inhabit that aren't exactly emotions, really. They are more mm-hmm. like states of being. Mm-hmm. It's like where you are in them, they are not in you. It's like, I'm going to Colorado, I'm going to Karuna. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so these aren't passing phenomena, just you know, arising like, oh, I sprayed my ankle, my ankle hurts, and then my mom called and she told me some great news, you know. Let me say something about the going to Karuna, the going to empathetic joy. Mm. I'm going to split hairs because I know you dig it. Is I don't think we're going to those states. I think we're opening ourselves up to those states. I think they're always there. And this is part of this conversation around open heartedness. I think your heart is always open, actually. It's just we put up these blinders, the mind closes your awareness that you are love, that you are vast. And, you know, the mind is cousins with the ego, the mind creates ego. Um, where were we going with this? Were we going to virtue? Uh, we, we certainly could. I mean, I absolutely, I felt Ren you know, with you right there. I felt co-humanity there because I agree. You're not going to that place. I'm glad you mm, massaged that, delineated that because um, I think really you begin to inhabit that state of being as a product of direct experience. And um, where, you know, Rumi has, uh, you know, that poem, The Guest House. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, where essentially emotions, you are the house, and emotions come and go as invited or uninvited guests. And uh, and you're there just to sort of greet them all as if they're just arising, appearing and disappearing at your dinner party, and, and that's it. And you can cultivate an, a, you know, upeka or, you know, equanimity and non-attachment around the visiting of different emotions, but they're simply passing um they're temporary, they're, they're transitory. Yes, they're exactly. They're yes. clouds. But I think what you touched on there is that these states of being like karuna or mudita or co-humanity, mm-hmm. they're not clouds. <laughs> they're always there for you. They're not clouds. I, I want to go back to shared suffering because mm-hmm. for me this begs a question of like, okay, if we're all one, what do I do about the guy in the corner? Or what do I do when a friend calls in the middle of divorce? And am I, and I hear this a lot, you know, I, we have our heart-centered membership and this question comes up a lot with our people is about taking on other people's pain. And is it helpful for me to feel my sister's grief? I wanna, I love her so much, I wanna feel her grief. No, it's actually not helpful. It's not helpful. You being sick doesn't help anybody else be well. But let's go back to this idea of shared suffering. Um, 
because I love you, because I, even you can even not be as warm about it. You could just say, because I have a cognitive understanding that we all come from the same source, I have oneness awareness, then I am going to feel suffering for your suffering. I'm going to be sad that you're sad, but it's my sadness. And then you get into some really enlightened shit where you move, you, you discover people, the masters who will take on, I mean, this is very meta, right? Who will take on the suffering of their people because, and, and th this, I, I, I really want to spend more time thinking about this because obviously they have the capacity to take it on. So, you know, um, Paramahasana Yogananda or, you know, the greats, they didn't take on the suffering of their community and it, it didn't take them down. They still vibed high and functioned and built communities and spread love. So you can't take on somebody else's suffering until you have the capacity to do that. And, you know, you and I have had this conversation, you know, you talking about being, you know, snuggled up with one of your girls and she's sick and you'd say, oh, I'd take it on if I could. And there is part of you that like, you could transmute that cold and that bacteria, that virus, whatever for her. And you would do that. So what I do, what my practice now is when I see the suffering of the dude on the corner, who's homeless, I do two things. One, I say to myself, that could be me. You're my brother. My heart breaks. And then I also say, you know, I do this like in another realm, like brother, I'm going to take that pain home for you. I'm going to do something with it. And I'm not taking it on, but I'm committing to look at like, you know, on my walk home, why am I so uncomfortable with his suffering? Do, am I judging his suffering? Oh, he got there and the drugs and then this and then that. How do I know he's not a Buddha, some Bodhisattva? And that's, he's taken that on. And then I've actually, you know, we were talking pre-chat, like I'm, I moved recently to be closer to the ocean and to the woods. And I was thinking the other day, will I get to a place? And I don't think it's going to happen in this lifetime. I don't think I'm up for it. Will I get to a place in my evolution where I take on the suffering of other people to transmute it? Well, I would think so. And then I, for the first time, I thought, won't that be awesome? Because I'll have the capacity to do that. Wow. I don't know. Mm. Thinking about it. I think you may be unconsciously doing it. I think the, one of the greatest gifts we can give one another is our presence or our attention. Of course, that's what everyone's vying for right? Mm -hmm. In the attention economy, everyone's buying for your time and attention and your presence. But, um, you know, Frankel famously wrote that the three places that we find meaning and purpose are <clears throat> work, relationships, and then suffering, the most difficult place. And I was thinking about that earlier today, or maybe yesterday, and the consilience there behind those three things are presence, really. Because, you know, 
if you think about finding purpose or meaning within work or creativity, it's those moments where you lose yourself in it, where you are just in the river. You are Lee, water source, Wu Wei, non-action, just you're in. You know, time disappears. You are completely present. When there are times that you are hmm, just in receipt of great meaning and gratification in relationship, it's right here, right now, while I'm just listening to every word that you say and processing it and trying to understand it and hoping that there's some construction that we build on of ideas that, that lead to a better one. And then in suffering, whether that is your own or whether that is the identification of someone else's as your own, that is a, a sensation and experience that is right here. It is right now. And so, I mean, I've only known you to hold space for so many people and for you to, to basically with your vibrant, robust psychological immune system to basically embrace those who might not have been able to find their way the way you have. And so in the same way that I huddle up, you know, with my child who has a cold, you know, in her bunk bed and say, hey, give it to me. I can handle it. Um, I think, you know, you. I think you're already doing it. Um, and the more I think we can help people find that presence, that ability to give attention, focused attention, um, I think the more we hold each other, the more we discover this sense of greater connection. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah. So there's a bunch of other things that I've been reading, that you've been writing, and, and other things that uh, I'm interested in probing with you. Um, this has been a time, this last couple of years has been a time for me of great expression um, of, in, in my form, that's writing. And I know that you also are a prolific writer. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the utility of writing and just mm -hmm. writing as a creative activity and how it, and its relationship to feelings. Never been asked that before. Never thought about it. I, well, that's not true that I've never thought about it. I can give you like the super basics. Um, I'm not a diarist. I don't have a journal. I only write down ideas and I only write in pencil. <laughs> <laughs> and I do have, I do some ritualistic writing. We do this in our membership where we write some stuff out before the new moon, because you just go into that shadow, you know, get in sync with what's going on. It's a shadowy dark time. Get into your unconscious, write about what's not working, what's stuck, all the grievances, and you just tear it up, let it go. And I think the, the mind needs 
that kind of ritualistic stuff. And, and I also think it's important to say here, just because I really want to keep this clean, is I'm not calling in other spirit guides. I'm not worshiping the moon. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I don't mess with those technologies. That's not my thing this time. I'm just, it's me and my psyche and that's what I do. Okay. Um, I don't, I still don't really consider myself a writer. Like when I get into, you know, an elevator with somebody saying, what do you do? I go, I'm a writer. Cause it's just like really simple. It's basic. Um, I love getting the right paragraph. I, I worship at the altar of word economy. I really, I feel like word economy for me is a way to be of service, but I, I could do this. I could be a filmmaker. I mean, I could just, I could maybe someday I'll just meditate in the woods and just transmit this stuff out and I won't need any credit or any income or any little hearts under my Instagram posts. Like for me, the writing is not the, it doesn't matter that much, Hmm. but I like it. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, helpful um to, as to use words as vessels for emotions such that we can actually communicate about our feelings oh and the more precise and informed the better i mean i also love to know the the origins of a word and i'm very yeah. precise in what i choose and you know if you hang out with me long enough i say don't don't say that about yourself just let's look at that word you know i love all of the emotos work on how the vibration of our words affects the structure the cellular structure water i love it i love it i love it yeah Doing a little bit of research about the heart, I ran across the funniest little story. Um, <laughs> so the ancient Romans held a curious, I suppose, belief about the heart that there was a vein, uh, literally a vein that extends from the fourth finger of your left hand directly to the heart. And they called it the vena amoris. Mm-hmm. Um the vein of love. And uh, even though this was not necessarily a completely correct anatomical understanding of the body, it did lead to the tradition of wearing, well, not your aura ring, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, yeah. that's a later your tradition we might touch on, but your wedding ring on the fourth finger of your left hand. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think there's some some interesting um and then they all had an orgy (laughs) yeah 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 some traditions die hard um but so i wanted to also um talk about this one trope that if anyone spend any time carousing new age spiritual spaces they've found some iteration of it which is pain is inevitable but suffering is optional. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. run across yeah. this one. Yeah. And I wonder if you can poke at that a little bit because for me, 
yeah, okay, we are not our thoughts, we are not our emotions, uh, we are not the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, you know, all that's true. But in the, that kind of memification of, um, of suffering as optional, there can be a lot of spiritual bypassing. And yeah. I know that this is a topic that you've thought about. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if you could spend a little time poking at that. Suffering is not optional. Wake up. You are here. It's a, it's, there's a lot of suffering in the division that comes with being in this dimension. You know, you, you sign up for um, an inferiority complex, which sometimes can manifest as a superiority complex. But you basically, you come in and you're just like, I'm alone and I'm separate and this sucks. Yeah. So they're suffering. I don't know anybody that hasn't suffered. And all the masters became masters because they transmuted their suffering. So if you just like embrace that, and actually you could kind of have some fun with it, um, you'll suffer less. It's like Alan Watts said, there's suffering. The trick is to not suffer over the suffering. So this is how it goes for me. I'm suffering. Of course, this sucks. I'm not going to, this is fairly recent, by the way. This is like the last couple of years. I'm not going to criticize myself for suffering. And I'm not going to try and repress or bypass or, you know, Catholicize my suffering. Um, you know, it's like recently, I just feel like really struggling with someone's unhappiness because it's a drag for me. <laughs> and I want to be like this great, loving, enlightened person. And it's actually taken me months to go, this is really hard on me. Hmm. Period. And I felt such a relief. I felt this surge of energy. It was like a version, a one addition of truth was like coursing through me. And I felt I had the energy to love this person more. But it, you know, I've been months of just like, ah, oh, you'll get through it. And, and I can be a great other person in this relationship and I'm going to hold space for you. And finally, I'm just like, this is hard and it's a real drag. And I think I'm going to go out of town a little bit, you know, and, <laughs> and then I just felt like, yeah, just so much more love. So there's that. And, you know, back to what I was saying, like, I'm fascinated by the masters who take on the suffering of others to mm. transmute it. And it's love that transmutes it. So you suffer. And instead of going, I'm a new age loser, what I now do is I say, I have time. I have time for you. Like, this is what I do on my walks in Stanley Park with the Sequoias mm -hmm. now is, you know, I've had this physical ailment that's been bothering me. And I say, first of all, I have to love my resistance. So my resistant co resistance comes up and I go, shit, like, oh, I've manifested this. Why can't I, why aren't I a great healer? And then I have to be compassionate with that. Be compassionate with my mm -hmm. self-judgment around having a physical ailment. I'll say that again, because I think I just lost you. Be compassionate mm -hmm. around my judgment around having a physical ailment. And mm -hmm. then I have to speak to the ailment itself. 
And sometimes that ailment, so that can like give us a bigger definition. The ailment can come in the form of like inflammation that's causing me physical discomfort, or it can come in the form of conflict with somebody, or it can come in the form of, I got a bad book review, let's say metaphorically, (laughs) whatever it is. And I say, even though you're a pain in the ass, I have time for you. Come tell me what you want. All right. Inflammation, that literal lower back pain. I have time for you. You might be visiting me every day for the rest of my life, but I know that I am vast. I am a big soul. I'm not this little tiny separate human and I can carry you. You're telling me something. I'm going to figure out what you're trying to tell me. And I trust in the divine that the divine's got me and I got you. And then I feel like I'm a good parent to myself that day. And Mm. I got to do it every day. And I have to do it with, you know, I'm not an overly addictive personality, but I do have a few things. I have to do it. Let's say uh, my neuroses, my, um, my neuroses, I say, oh God, there's that same I have a few, I have a little bit of paranoia that comes up around particular things and I really don't like it because it causes me anxiety and that's very distracting. I can't do my work and uh, I say, okay, paranoia. All right. I got space for you. What do you want to say today? If you come back tomorrow, I'm going to listen and you know what? I'm going to take paranoia. Why don't you come with me to work? You're exactly where I think I shouldn't bring you. Like I should show up as whole and fearless and dynamic and loving. But you know what? I think every day is take your paranoia to work day. (laughs) And I'm going to keep doing it (laughs) because I find if I try and like relegate it and keep it away, it gnaws at me. It's like if I, let's just say I was, I'm, I, you know, I'm not because there's all this love and experience. But if I was like all nervous and neurotic about this conversation, it would be better for me to say, instead of pressing pause and doing some ridiculous visualization, keep it on the outside, you know, put it on the porch. I'm going to bring it with me. I'm going to literally put my hands on my heart or my belly and say, okay, paranoia, I'm about to have this interview. Come, you can sit here. You can sit here. And I'm so awesome. I have so much love. I have space for you. And I have space for me to be loving and dynamic in this conversation. Yeah, don't push it aside. Bring it with you. Bring it with you. It calms down that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have well-documented paranoia and phobias all over the place. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly as it pertains to public speaking, um, you know, I'll have that same emergence of shivers and butterflies and mm-hmm nausea and like big grapefruit in the throat and then of course you know as i've become slightly more edified you know i try to actually witness that sensation as a sensation that is so similar to excitement but i've just Mm -hmm. assigned the wrong valence to it um where uh, i'm saying and so But then if I bring that sensation onto a stage and 
have it sit like as you said well there's a chair there's a podium for you too <laughs> and you're vulnerable about it 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 just it it transmutes into your friend i mean really it's just this moment that you open your mouth you're like yes now this is now you're my friend now this is excitement now i'm here now i'm feeling great now i'm feeling connected now i'm feeling felt heard and seen and felt <laughs> krasno this is the secret to life to healing like what you did is like it's an act of compassion and it's that so you know you bring you reframe it you bring this nervousness speaking you really just kind of brought it into your heart brought along with you and that is the transmutational act that's the move that's it yeah hmm. It's what we assign. Inhale. It's what we assign to things. It's what we assign to things. Mm, it's yeah. like you know, one of my addictions uh, for many years has been staying up too late, and so you can imagine. I mean, just like having another smoke or another hit, the criticism that comes with giving into that addiction. So, like just last week, I said to my man, I was like, "Oh, I'm tired today because I did it again." I stayed up too late and, you know, it's not great for my immune system and I got to finish this thing. And he just, you know, he just put his hand on me and he just said, babe, you were so excited. And it was this complete reframe yeah. that came from a place of love. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. I did that. I stayed up so late because I was so excited to get all of that together. And I just relaxed and next night, Lights out by 10.30. Yeah. The compassion for oneself may be the hardest rot of, of yeah. all compassion. Um, and to kind of use compassion as an on-ramp into the next topic here, you know, nobody has to look too hard to witness the invective of modern culture, that every single issue seems to be framed within uh, binary oppositions. And, you know, we can't seem to even have decent public discourse or agree without being disagreeable. Mm -hmm. How does one hold that polarization uh, in a manner that actually brings us forward there's a really simple way which is you can say to yourself as you're judging somebody else for how unevolved they are you just say oh i've done that before i was that i was that much of a goof before i was that opinionated i've been I've been that righteous. Could have been 10 years ago when you were, you know, way less enlightened than you are. It could have been on a completely different topic. But you just, you find that habit, that behavior that you are so averse to in somebody else, and you find a way to attribute it to yourself. That is just a little common ground maneuver. And then you just can't kind of takes your edge off of being so judgmental. 
And now things are so extreme that we say, well, I didn't make that choice, that uninformed, misinformed, whatever, whatever choice. You say, well, I've probably made an uninformed, misinformed choice before. Okay. Next thing is you look for common interest. Why are they doing what they're doing? They're doing it for their health. Cool. I do things for my health. Okay. They're doing it for their children. Oh, I, I would die for my child. What do we, what we, that you could push this out even further. Somebody's going to say, we don't all want the same things. I think when you get down to like the universal pith of the matter, we do all want the same things. How could we not all want the same things? We come from the same source. We are cut from the same fabric of light. We are related. So it might take a while, but we're going to get back to want being aware that we want the same things. And then I think we go even deeper and we'll be aware that we actually aspire. There's a difference between desire and aspiration. We do aspire for the same things. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to move back to a place of trying to excavate and trust each other's intentions, core intentions, instead of judging the color of someone's leaves, you know. Um, Intention is one of the key arguments, though, in cancel culture, right? That intention, your intention doesn't mitigate the harm you've caused. And I actually take issue with that. I, th I think there's, there is some truth to that, right? Like, for it to be true, it has to include all sides. There's no truth in left or right or right or right or wrong, right? So, but, but I think Jesus would say, I think Christ consciousness embodied in any form would say, you don't know the intention in someone's heart. You just do not know the machinations of somebody's soul. And so to call in to question somebody's intention when they articulate, I thought I was doing the right thing. I really had the best of intentions is violent. It's really violent. It doesn't, doesn't move us closer together. That's faux show. Yeah. I mean, I just think about my, I talk about this with Skylar quite a bit and um, like most of my friends, because my circle tends to be like-minded uh, are relatively um, pro-choice, for example, on the, on the issue of abortion, let's say we go walk right over the third rail mm -hmm. on a tightrope. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but when I really try to honestly examine the intentions of someone who might not be pro reproductive freedom or pro life, for example, mm -hmm. and I really try to uh, listen and understand the best parts of their argument or position, Mm -hmm. um, I can recognize that it is rooted in a place of deep moral conviction Absolutely. in the same way that Skylar's moral conviction around the, the right that she should have to make decisions about 
you know, the fate of her own body is also right. rooted in a deep ethical um, conviction. And so when I, I, I think this is like what I mean is trying to always, to try to get to the roots of underneath, you know, what could be this kind of divisive argument that, that exists above the soil. Um, and it's, it's very, very difficult. And I just worry about it um, because, you know, right now we're, we're facing so many impending challenges. And if we can't find a way to recognize our mutual moral convictions and really try to root there in, in an honest attempt to find real solutions, like we all want less abortions, um, then, uh, you know, I worry about like, okay, climate change, you know, the next pandemic, you know, fill in the blank crisis, um, because we just cannot seem to find ways to cooperate. Mm -hmm. um, the A step, I think, is softening. If we could just get to softer, because I think we get blocked by, you know, you could have enough wisdom, you could have enough common sense. I mean, even me saying common sense is a bit of a value judgment, right? Like just have enough common sense to know that we got to get on the same page. Um, but I think when we consider that, we think, okay, getting on the same page means we agree to disagree, no, it doesn't even mean that yet. It's just like, we need to do more of what you just described, which is have a conversation and consider someone's perspective. Let's just start there and see the value, the beauty really in their perspective. We don't have to lay judgment on how they're voicing it or how they're trying to push it into law or whatever their sign says. But just, can we just soften to really, truly be interested? And that, I think, is holding polarization. That's, that's the most exciting thing, you know, about the, um, our facilitator curriculum yeah. is all I want. I can die happy. I could die happy today, but I could die even happier if... I start to hear more stories of, my God, I just got people to more gentleness. Hmm. That's it. That's all. Because yeah. once you get that flowing, so much more is possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose part of it is getting into real connection and real community. It's hard to hate up close. So that's a big part yeah. of it is being able to move into safe community. Um, and real conversation. You know, I um, was looking up all the different words that meant heart. Hmm. Uh, it was very sweet, actually. Um, and then I wrote this article uh, for Human Shift magazine. I think it was a bit of an article based on an interview I did with Rich Roll and his wife, Julie, and um, about the heart chakra, uh, which is anahata. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't actually really know what the Sanskrit word meant. So I looked it up and it 
means sound produced without touching two parts. So it's a, it's a little uh, cosmic there for a minute. But really, like normally we're not used to the effect produced by the confrontation of two opposite forces, right? But at the level of anahata, it's possible to integrate these two opposite forces and obtain a sound. And, you know, the sound that is of anahata is the sound that is never struck. So it really has no beginning and has no end. So it sits kind of behind ephemeral um, world of 10,000 things and, and sits in this kind of eternal place. And, you know, obviously a, a Buddhist talk a lot about Madhmayaka or the middle way. And at some point in history, really, that's, I think, more about it, finding a way between asceticism and hedonism. But I think if one wants to apply concepts of the middle way or of anahata or of leading with the heart right now, it is really making a lot of effort to A, be humble, not necessarily have to be right, and really de devote oneself to bringing opposites together. Uh, like I, I wrote this, uh, I think this post, which I, I got some flack from, from my more progressive friends. I think I said, the middle is the most radical place to be. <laughs> and, um, and people are like, what are you talking about? You know, no, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are blocking a once in a lifetime chance to stop, you know, the degradation of our yeah. soil, you know, all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that this is some limp conciliation right now. I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, moderation, what that actually means is, yeah, don't edge off to the extremes, but focus your energy to bringing opposites together. Yes. And, You're uh, talking about the heart center. Yeah. Yes. And the neutrality of love. Like this is the thing. Love is actually, love neutralizes all that fractious, noisy stuff. It's like the heart space is vast. And this is why in Buddhism, the sky is referred to so much as this symbol of our true nature. It's vast. Can you even imagine? I mean, everybody listening right now, close your eyes or look out the window. It's like that sky that is unlimited is your true nature, your energy, the, the Taurus, T-O-R-U-S, the big ball of light that you are is that big. Oh my God. Then you can even begin to maybe start to think about possibly considering you know, your infinite nature, but the, the heart space, the middle way is where everything is in. So your politics, I have space for your politics. I have space for my politics. I have space for my wounds and my sad, sorry, needy inner child. I have space for my genius and my righteousness. I have space for all of it. It's like, it's what's here. And I can handle it. And part of realizing that you can handle it is, is self-responsibility. It's like, 
I can handle it because I have to handle it because I created it. I created my neuroses. I created this fear. I created this hatred, this trigger I feel for somebody else. All those little emotions and feelings are like my little babies. And I need to be responsible for them if I want to be a grown up. If, you know, all the things we desire, we want to be creative. We want all these workshops on manifesting. Listen. You want to manifest, you need to take responsibility for what you've already manifested. And that includes your anxiety and your racism and your prejudice and your judgment. Take responsibility for manifesting that shit. And then you will be able to manifest all of the good flora and fauna that can come from that compost. And you, you bring in all those little fragments of yourself and you become truly great, truly grand, that the middle way is the heart. And in the heart, everything is in. So what is lighting up your heart at the current time? Well, you know, I'm in love. Since we last hung out, I fell in love and we're just super in love. It's great. Like there's no, oh, you know, there's no other way to put it. I am learning, you know, the title of my next book is how to be loving, hmm. how to be loving and, um, the relationship, the thing that we are, uh, teaches me how to be loving. And I praise my soul for, uh, magnetizing someone who, uh, teaches me how to be loving. Hmm. Did you For write example. it? Is it written? Oh God. It's so written. It's so written, but I am in that final proofing and I've just been, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm like the haggard, resentful writer, which is maybe why when you asked me about writing earlier, I'm just like, oh, I don't really, you know, I'm not into it. Um, yeah. Don't write a book. Anyway, just stop, don't. Uh, yeah. So I'm learning how to be loving. I learned enough that I, I could write about 300 pages on it. Yeah. The, the, tr the hard thing about writing is that you're not really concerned with the product. I mean, of course you can be, yeah. you can be sort of diverted by it, but writing is a, a process. It's like, you don't play the, the song on my piano here. You don't play the song to get to the end of it. That's not the purpose of yeah. it. You play it to play it. You know, you don't have a dance with someone for it just to be over or, you know, the best dancer would be the quickest one <laughs> or whatever. You know, these are the things <laughs> is that the, we are so consumed with the notion of product and, and not mm. process. So, you know, when it comes to manifesting, yeah, sure. I have a business. I made a business plan. I had a vision for that. I made a, I developed a lot of fluency around the vision, you know, mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. I had a product in mind somewhat, so I'm not going to like, you know, holier than thou everyone at this moment. But once you have that vision laid out, then it really does become an exercise in chopping wood and carrying water every day. And it, you can 
once you sort of you know, practice essentially, you know, non-attachment. So non-attachment sometimes is misunderstood as sort of lack of ambition. It's like, yeah. oh, you're just like passive. You're not really doing it. A. I it's think not. It's not could, detachment. Yeah. Right. It's very different. I mean, a. I think we might benefit from a little more passivity, anyways. But aside from that. You can be ambitious. You can bring your best self to the game every day without necessarily being emotionally attached to that, to the outcome of that. And when you let go of the emotional attachment to the outcome, you can really just bring your best self to every moment because all you are is process. All you are is the pine cone in the stream. You're going downstream. And, um, you know, I find that over the last couple of years, anyways, that, uh, when I can just kind of let go of like, oh, I've, I've got this on my docket and I need to achieve this by that day. And I just am able to be very present with people moment to moment, um, have less conversations, but have deeper ones. You know, mm. write less things, but really excavate that topic. Um, mm. Really invest myself in the only thing that I have, which is now. And, uh, and, and stop projecting my, the phantoms of my past into the future to create these kind of anticipated memories. Um, and this has been a, a great, uh, kind of liberation. I think that the ego really does not like simplicity because like the, the ego wants to have the more conversations and more brightness and more words and more affirm me and all those ways, get, get, get affirm, firm and have, 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 whether it's interaction all the energy that comes from that, or it's like actual material stuff. Um, and you know, what you're describing is simplicity. And that's like my new gem is simplicity as a spiritual practice. It's changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know that you've been able to over the last couple of years, focus your life. Um, and I, th I, I think that that is a, I don't, I think we're not alone in that regard. No, um, I think I, it's part of the collective heartbeat right now. I hear it all the time. Oh, I want to get rid of, Oh, you, you gave that away. I want to give that away. People feel the, I think it's this evolutionary imperative to mm. simplify. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely agree with you. So I know that we're working together on the facilitator program. Um, yeah. I want to at least spend a little bit of time talking about that. Can you describe what that is? Uh, it is a curriculum to support people to have heart-centered connection. And so uh, we have, I mean, what it looks like on the outside is we have a growing community, 400 now, heart-centered facilitators. A lot of them are life coaches certified in other words otherwise some of them are taking the work into prisons some of them are just moms who wanted to get their hands on this material to use in their families 
got a lo- lot of yoga teachers. Uh, we're just bringing in a whole heart-centered program into, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but one of the largest consultancies in the world in mm. their cyber tech division, which I find super exciting. I like to go where it's really hard, where people just think I'm <laughs> super wacky. <laughs> And I was like, I want to, well, this is how I lead. And I say, so I used to run a think tank for future studies in Washington, D.C. And they take you, you know, the door kind of opens. I say, and now I talk about the intelligence of the heart. And then by the end, we're all crying and talking about love and the inner child and doing shadow work before you're born, you know, as part of, you know, really showing up as a leader uh, in the boardroom. And so I have... These exercises, 34 of them to be exact, and some are about holding polarization. And some, they're all uh, overtly or subversively about (laughs) shadow work. And I really think, I've I've really been interested in bringing this work into businesses. And I've been having a lot of conversations about, you know, always that obsession with innovation in the corporate culture. And there's an openness now that heart-centered leadership is the next edge because, you know, being led by greed has got us into this mess that we're in. People are getting it. Now there's all this research and actual science backspace about, you know, electromagnetic frequency of the heart and how the heart really calls the shots, not the brain. Um, So you come into the facilitator program, you have these tools for resiliency and run with them in your own way or you we've you can open the book and you can run a workshop on the same day you get the materials and there's training on how to be a more engaged listener we worked with certified uh integral master level coaches and a couple psychologists and an energy worker to work on that skill set. And then we let people into like our behind the scenes on how to run a heart-centered online personal development focused business. So we have this business circle. You come in every month and my team and I tell you, we talk about like, oh, this algorithm on Instagram, totally going to mess you up. And oh, this is how we hire people. And this is how we let people go. And this is how we raise money. And this is how we, this is why we don't use this software or whatever. It's, it's, it's us at our uh, coziest business best. Yeah. Well, creatives rarely get that training. Um, because, uh, we don't go to business school. Um, and so some of us now who I'm 51 anyways, um, uh, who have, you know, had to learn, you know, paint by numbers all the way, um, particularly in the worlds of, you know, wellness and personal growth that we're not really, you know, bushwhacked pre-bushwhacked career paths, um, you know, when we started Wanderlust or, for example, or when you started teaching uh, and, and leading people. So, you know, we had to step in our own buckets of shit <laughs> for mm-hmm. years and years. And, you know, there is, you know, some worth in that. There is, everyone's got to do that. You know, there is, um, but to the degree that, uh, 
you know, you can help people avoid some of the mistakes that God knows I made. Um, that is an immense service. And also just getting people clear about what they really want in their life before there's even a mistake to be made. Well, uh, in terms of the, the business stuff, I think there's, there's lots of people in the space who know how to hustle. It's like, we know how to grow our Instagram following. We're doing that. And there's so many courses on how to monetize and all of that. I'm kind of going back to the original intention, which is the heart in the hustle. And I, I think, you know, we're getting so pulled out so easy for so many reasons. We, you know, uh, so pulled out by social media and everybody wants to be a bazillionaire now. Just like, hey, here's how to sell things in a way that aren't sleazy. And this is what we do with our money. Um, yeah, I'm interested in the heart. heart. Super hard. Yeah, I mean, me too. It's like, especially yeah. as I've thought about it over the last year, and I read E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful book, and mm -hmm. I've read, you know, Charles Eisenstein's Sacred Economics book, and I've thought so much about, you know, what is the business that I actually want to grow and create. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, one comes, if one believes that there's a problem when the butter from New Zealand is cheaper than the butter that you buy at your farmer's market or whatever, if one thing, and that to me is a problem yes. that, and represents, you know, some of the ills of globalism and neoliberalism and, and, you know, mechanization and all this kind of stuff. Um, then I think, you know, one has to think about like, what is my version of a small local business that the mean where the means justify the ends where everyone is paid well where everyone is empowered where everyone is excited and bringing their best game every day and that i will tell you from my own personal experience because i've seen it in different ways that is a way more fulfilling way and meaningful way um, to live one's life or to grow one's business. Uh, I always laugh when I see like BP's mission statement is like to, to create a more ecological and verdant world or something, you know, it's just like, no, you know, it's like, wait a minute. Green washing. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when your mission statement needs to be aligned with actually what you do every single day. Um, mm -hmm. and that is the, that is the reflection of, an authentic existence. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're doing this. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah. It feels, uh, well, just blessed, super blessed in all directions. Like I get to get up every day and have a conversation with somebody about loving kindness. Cool. Yes. Yes. Well, when are we going to break bread again in person? Mm -hmm. I hope soon. Sooner than later, I hope. Yeah. Yes. Well, we have worked together for a number of years. Um, I actually remember one phone call that we had that we were both at very specific inflection points in our life. Um, I remember the drive. I was driving, actually. I remember where I was coming from. I think I was actually driving back from head, a meeting I had at Headspace. 
and I had to pull off in like a in like a parking lot to have finish our conversation because it was such a very it just came at such a particular moment in my life um, where I was you know second guessing myself and I had a lot of issues around self worth and how I was anchoring my identity and uh, I'll always remember that that. that that time and it was really really helpful and um and then we worked together and created a couple of courses really early on in the gestation period of commune where you mm-hmm. you know took a chance on a little toddler in diapers and if if i know anything i know that the new need friends and we were new and we needed friends and <laughs> uh and you were there and you were so supportive and really helped us, um, you know, get out of the gates. So I'll always be extremely grateful for that. Mm, It feels like family. We are really this working with commune, you know, I've I've just been wrapping some stuff up for you all, Mm. the things we're, we're making together again. And I have to like restrain my gushiness. I'm just like, yeah, Dear people, but via the route of commune, I'm so in love with every person there and memories of sunsets in Topanga. And I'm like, okay, we're going to do this webinar on how to connect with your higher self. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I feel it's very hard to reel in the sanctimony because it's it's real. It's absolutely 100% real. Yeah. Well, you still got the biggest, brightest smile in the game. (laughs) just ridiculously infectious and uh now that you know, i put all of these up on youtube anyone who's listening to the audio version will have to go see the mile wide smile for themselves on youtube i love you thank you i love you thank you yeah i'm so happy Thank you for listening to my conversation with Danielle Laporte. To keep abreast of Danielle's work and general whereabouts, go to daniellelaporte.com. And if you're interested in going deeper with Danielle, take part one of Danielle's commune course, The Desire Map, for free at onecommune.com slash desire dash map. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into the creation of this show. We really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows, nor will it ever be one, where the first 15 minutes are just rambling ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week after week, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.